Hey everyone, welcome to the Dave Isms Podcast. This is episode four of Monday Ramblings. Last week I said Rambling Monday. Either one, it's still Monday and I'm still rambling. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is actually going to be episode, from the start of the show, episode 23. In case you're counting, I always I usually never say that, but what episode it is. But anyway, so this is just me talking about different things or happen to pop up in my head just to discuss and talk about. Um, I actually re-watched the documentary that I highly recommend um, called Blood Road. And it's not about um, like a murder or anything like that. It's about a woman, uh, Rebecca Roosh, I think I said that right, who is a firefighter, but she's also an athlete, mountain biking, gravel racing. But at the age of four, in 1972, she lost her dad in the Vietnam War. Uh, his plane was shot down. And what she was, what she, her goal was to ride the Ho Chi Minh Trail and then stop on the anniversary of her dad's death to find his uh, exact spot where his plane crashed. And uh, she rode the trail with another woman. Uh, a woman from Vietnam who's a cyclist. And then she had support from another guy in Vietnam. I forget if he was British or American. I don't remember. See, your memory just starts to fizzle out as you get older. But, uh, and I think her, I don't know if it was her boyfriend or husband and another guy were like a support team, you know, helping them refuel here and there and uh, clean up and whatever. But, uh, it's um it's just, it's just kind of a good uh tale it's interesting to see kind of what vietnam looks like today um and it's just there's some things in there that you're, you're like wow why is it still like this why did they do this i'm not even going to get into what it is because you just have to see it to believe it and i believe it's on Amazon Prime, if I didn't say that before, and I think it's free, pretty much. It should be free. Um, but it's just, um, first of all, driving, running a mountain bike 1,200 miles in so many weeks, and the Ho Chi Minh Trail, well, some of it's open, but a lot of it's overgrown because they changed, they made all different kinds of trails at certain times, depending on uh, how bad the Americans were bombing certain areas. Um, and it's interesting also to get a perspective of, uh, some people that a person that was in the war and also the woman that she's cycling with who's from Vietnam, how she viewed the war, you know, as compared to the way we view it. So it's, uh, it's interesting. It's, it's not interesting as in, oh, that's interesting. That's boring. But sometimes when people say to you, oh, that's interesting. They're not even, that's like the, I don't, when someone says it to me, I'm going, they mean that's boring, but, uh, I should say it's a, just a good documentary and it's just good to see what war leaves behind. Um, and I think the reality is, uh, people that have been in war, including my uncle was in the Vietnam war and, uh, I'm always repeating myself, but he used to always have a picture 
um, in his den that was a young man and just a picture with him smiling. Um, and I remember that kid when I was probably, I was four or five years old, maybe. Um, and I remember playing with him, but he was a teenager, maybe 17, 18. And I didn't remember his name until one day. I, I still forgot it because my uncle told me, but this was probably at least two years ago when he, when I asked him, who's that? Cause I remembered him, but I didn't know, but I just wanted to know what happened to him. And unfortunately he went to Vietnam at age 18 and he died at 18. Uh, and that's, I mean, my uncle has a farm that's 130 acres and, uh, sorry, I got my notes here. I don't mean to rough them, but he has a, you know, he used to be a, a dairy, you know, you don't know. <laughs> I always say that. You don't know, but he, he used to be a dairy farm many years ago when we were kids. Uh, and now he just does some minor farming to pay low taxes and make some hay and make a little bit of money, if any, because uh, he's retired. But honestly, I don't know who he's going to give the farm to. And I honestly don't want the farm. I just want that picture of the kid that I used to play with when I was a little boy uh, to have to remember because, uh, yeah, I just can't imagine if he had come back, you know, what his life would have been. Uh, but I'm getting off track. But that's just, it's just interesting to see different sides of things. Um, I mean, I went on a, uh, I said it was a date. I went on a date for Match.com, and this woman, a uh, little older than me by three years, so you can figure that out. I don't know if I said my age yet, but she came here from China in 1990, and it was interesting to talk to her about certain things. Although I didn't really go into the government stuff because, you know, here in America, we can throw stuff at government buildings, and you could get arrested. Although if you do something to a federal building, uh, if you're planning to do anything like this, you will get no bail, okay? <laughs> you're not getting right out of there uh, for defacing or destroying a federal property in any way. Just so you know. So pay attention to what you're doing if you're doing something stupid like that. Um, but it's just fascinating to hear because the reality is in any communist country, and even though Russia is supposedly not communist, you really can't say protest the government because what happens is you'll either go to jail or you'll disappear somewhere or you could get killed. <laughs> not that that couldn't happen here, but most likely uh, if you're lucky enough to get any kind of lawyer and you can whatever. But uh, So I didn't really get into that part of it, although it was interesting. She said she came here in 1990 because her parents came over here and some of her family. So she followed them and, uh, you know, diff doing different jobs, was in Vegas, working at a casino. And I forget where she, she ended up, she didn't stay really long in New York because it was just too much money. And then works here now and makes, has her own little business and, you know, makes good money. But the fascinating thing is that her, some of her friends that are around their fifties are, they retire at age 50. I'm like, what? I go, I didn't know that. I didn't really get into more details because we were just hanging out at a park uh, and talking. But 
that's something I didn't really know, but I didn't really get into any of the details. Well, I'm sure the people that live in the country that are poor farmers aren't retiring at 50. Um, but, you know, I shouldn't say that because I don't really don't know. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know if the government has all this money and then when you get to be 50, you, they have a good retirement plan because, you know, the government in China makes a lot of money. And, of course, that's going up and down now depending on what people all over the world are buying from them. Uh, and what we're, what Americans and their companies are producing things there. But so it's just different things. I had, you know, sometimes you want to ask questions, but I don't want to say, well, yeah, but what about the pollution? Because China, it's supposedly getting better. But when they have the Olympics there, they shut down a lot of factories. So the air would be clean enough so people can actually breathe. Um, then I remember professional, I forget if it's road or mountain bike cyclists. They didn't shut it off. It was for a separate thing, not the uh, Olympics. And a bunch of them, a lot of them didn't finish because they couldn't couldn't breathe because the air was so bad. So, you know, I, there's some negative there. I'm, I, I don't mean to get negative, but a lot of the developing countries pollute a lot. India, uh, countries in Africa, um, North Korea. And Taiwan, I think, too. And then there's other countries, too, I shouldn't say. But in America, we're pretty clean. A lot of Europe's clean. Japan, I can't say Japan. And, yeah, I said a lot of Europe. Um, but everybody talks about the global warming, but why don't they talk about what's going on in these countries that are producing stuff and don't really have any standards for emissions at all. Why don't we just come together as various countries and say, Hey, in order for them to buy from you, you have to meet these standards of air quality and hold them to that. But you can't cause China doesn't care about, uh, much anything except making money. Uh, I shouldn't say, well, but you know, every government needs to make money so they can, uh, provide programs. But, China doesn't have workman's comp. You just do your job. And if you get hurt, then you're, you're out of luck, basically. You'll be lucky if you can get anything. Um, but I'm getting off the topics I actually wrote down. <laughs> but I just find it fascinating. It's cool to talk to people because you always have a perception of where the different countries are from what you hear from either uh, the news or certain documentaries or movies or whatever. But it's always cool to have somebody that used to live there and just told uh, and has been back there and just to see. I didn't really delve deep into it, but I always wanted to ask more about the government things because that's the thing. There's usually bad government, but the people all over the world usually want to have, you know, food, water, place to live and uh, safety and all those good things. But the governments are the ones that mess everything up, I think. Obviously, for the most part. But I was getting down to other topics. Uh, got to wrote down so many different things. got to flip over my piece of paper. What are right here? Oh, okay. Now I'll just save that for another time. But yeah, some other ramblings on. Uh, I was watching... Uh, this is uh, another show on... Well, this is on Netflix. It's called Million Dollar Beach House. And there's another show that's called Million Dollar Listing, which is a show that's been around for 
well over five years, maybe seven or eight, I don't even know. And it's, it kind of fascinates me when people, you know, strike it on their own or go to New York City or somewhere to sell high-end real estate and they start out with nothing and really had nothing and then become, you know, selling tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of property in a year. And it's not something that I would want to do because I'm not very cutthroat and I'm not a schmoozer. I just like say, this is this and this is that, like black and white. And I'm not one that's going to throw these kind of parties. And it doesn't really, uh, it's not something I like to do. I don't know if I could ever be in sales. It would be something I really believe in. And if it was a house, I'd have to go, it'd have to be something that was made really well. And I knew how it was constructed and I know every detail about it. And I could probably sell it, but I don't know. That's kind of, it's kind of difficult when you, uh, like you're starting out and then you're selling houses. Well, how do you know it's perfect? I mean, I've watched shows where the people did, they did an inspection, but then the people buy it after the inspection, they get it. And then there's still a lot of problems because the inspector missed stuff. So it's almost, I was, I don't own a house, but I would almost want to get two inspectors. And then at least if one of them misses something, maybe the other one will find something, but obviously that's a lot more money, but it would, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, kind of scary when you're making a big purchase like that but it's fascinating that people can have nothing and then go into real estate and really do very well although depends where you live new york city not so much now because people are moving out of there to other areas even into connecticut new jersey pennsylvania just because of the virus because instead of being on top of I imagine if you just were able to walk in and out and go places and walk around New York and jump on the subway or take a taxi or an Uber or whatever. And, and now you really can't go in anywhere because a lot of things are closed down. And so what do you do? You're in this small, if you're wealthy, okay, you might have an outside area, but you could be just in this small apartment not being able to really go much of anywhere and do much of anything. It's almost like, a, it's almost like the city's a ghost town when I see pictures here and there. Uh, but that's it. I don't really, I'm really not the type of person that would be able to sell real estate because you're on call all the time. The potential to make money, yes, but not everybody succeeds. You have to have a certain drive and I don't know, I'm not a schmoozer and I don't like being the bearer of bad news when somebody's offering you, you know, a million dollars or $10,000 less than you really want or whatever. I don't, and going back and forth, all that BS. I'd rather just be, this is the price, that's it. You're going to buy it or you're not going to buy it. <laughs> I like cut and dry, I guess. But, uh, yeah, it's just it's just interesting. I mean, the Million Dollar Beach House one is just real estate in the Hamptons. And it's just, I don't know. I just can't get into it. I mean, I like watching the shows. And I'm fascinated the dynamics between people, and uh, but it's it's just I don't know I I don't I'm not a cutthroat person or a business person that wants to you know be better than this person be better than this or blah 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 I'd rather be better than myself like get a little better at something or trying something and seeing how good I can get at it 
and try and do not, I'm, I don't want to be as good as him. I want to be the best me I can be. Uh, but the people who do real estate, I don't have nothing against you. I think it's cool. If you love your job and you enjoy it, that's, that's a cool thing. I just find it fascinating, just the dynamics of people and what they have to do and kind of the ups and downs. It's, it's just, I, I find it fascinating to watch. Um, okay, what else we got? Well, uh, in case anybody doesn't know, I've been watching the Tour de France. Although Tour de France goes for three weeks and usually a couple thousand miles. And uh, today, usually every today, Monday, Labor Day is a rest day. They're not riding. And then next Monday, I believe that's also a rest day. And the following weekend, they end. But it's just, uh, I was watching this one rider, and he's at his first Tour de France. Actually, I have a, uh, a couple of Americans that are new that are pretty good riders. It's pretty, it's pretty cool to see some good Americans. There's only three of them over there this year. But it's just that this one stage that they had, I think it was just, I think it was Sunday. There's Sunday or Saturday. I can't recall. Wow, my mind's gone. Young kid, 23-24, took the lead on his own, just took off. Had anywhere from three minutes, two minute lead. Then literally the last mile, he got caught by a group of three or four guys. And he just hung out. Imagine that you're almost a mile. You're within a mile of winning. You know, your first big stage, which is a huge thing. I mean, you only get, I think it's between five or 7,000 for winning a stage. And usually, well, the person that wins the Tour de France, they usually give the money and split it between their teammates. Cause it's not just you doing all the work. There's people helping you. If you're one of the top people, the lower guys will get the water bottles and bring you the food from the car and all that stuff. You don't do anything. You just ride because you're saving your energy to win the damn race. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, I just can't imagine, you know, he was riding with the group and kind of was hanging on, just, you know, saving some energy because he would have beaten anybody in the sprint. He was, would be, the, but obviously he put out a lot of energy to stay ahead of everybody for so long. Um, Cause I think the stage was definitely over 80 miles and it had some good climbs to it too. But he took off in the sprint just a hair too soon. And then two people, two of the guys passed and he came in third. So I could see being, kind of heartbroken that oh, it's your first year and you could have won a stage which doesn't mean he won't win one you know in the future but uh this is how when you're rooting for an underdog and somebody new um if you just waited god maybe two seconds you could have won and it's just uh i don't know i like the the tactics and just the I mean, most of these guys are, you know, well, not most of them. They're all probably in a single-digit body fat, which is not very healthy to do. But the lighter you are, the better you can climb. And, but the reality is not everybody's built to be, to win a three-week race. Because there's people that are sprinters that all they do, they're good at sprinting, but not climbing mountains. Um, you have and you have guys that are very good at the mountains. Then you have guys that are good at doing a time trial, which is you just racing a certain distance on your own 
or with your t just your team to get from one point to another the fastest. So you have to be very versatile to win the whole thing and kind of well-rounded. Uh, but I don't know. I just like I wanted to see the kid win. That's all. <laughs> so that's my point. <laughs> and what other stuff? Uh, let's see. And I watch all different kinds of racing. I enjoy. Excuse the crinkling of paper. I enjoy all uh, various types of racing from just beater cars doing a figure eight racing to whatever anything motorcycles bicycles uh power boats I, I find it i just like i don't know why i like it but i like it and i was watching the formula one which is basically the top level of racing where a two-man team a two-driver team you're usually spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to make the cars get the motors and have a crew of hundreds if not up to a thousand people working on you know making this vehicle so you can win a race and uh it's it's interesting because red bull you see red bull everywhere it's all you know it's all extreme sports it's in all kinds of auto racing motorcycles just airplanes every kind of racing you can think of they I, i've I never even drank Red Bull because I'm afraid to even do any energy drinks because I remember my sister knew someone that drank one, then he went for a jog and he almost had a freaking heart attack. So I'm like, I don't need that. I got plenty of energy. I don't need that stuff. So, uh, but it was fascinating because Red Bull has sponsors two teams in Formula One to show you how much money they have. Their hire team, which, you know, they have their two best drivers of that team, and then a little lower team, which probably has a budget of, I don't know how much less, but it's less, you know. It would be like, uh, um, see, I don't know how to explain it, because it's, it's not that easy to explain. But anyway, there was this one driver, uh, Pierre Gasly, who got the call at a young age to be at the top-level team, and that was last year. And he wasn't performing as well. So they dropped him down to the low team, which he wasn't happy about. But then what do you do? Uh, it's kind of devastating when they're not even going to let you finish the year out. And, you know, usually when you start, you get, they get paid pretty well. I mean, the top driver, the, the, both the top drivers in Formula One, if they've won a championship, are usually fetching well over $25 million a year. The top one, the top driver... He's got a contract of $50 million a year, plus whatever endorsements you have. So, uh, you know, that's a lot of money. <laughs> but Pierre Gasly was in the upper echelon of the Red Bull team. Got kicked down. Like, it would be a professional, uh, you know, professional in any American sport. You're a professional baseball player. Then you got to kick down to, I forget, is it double A or triple A? I don't remember. You know, but you get kicked down to the farm team, the lower team. And sometimes people get kicked down just to, you know, straighten them out to say, hey, if you don't perform here, then you're you're done, basically. So it was just, I would always root for him because you get kicked down to the lower team. And the guy that replaced you during this season, he's actually beat the guy that replaced him in the upper team a lot of times. And then this weekend 
he actually won the damn race. And it kind of made me happy because, wow, you're not, you're in a little lower budget team. You're not on the top team, but you beat everybody. You beat teams with a lot bigger budgets. And it's just, I, I always like to root for the underdog. Even the Kentucky Derby, the one that was favored to win, got beat by, I think, uh, I don't remember the name, forgive me, but the the one that won was either 8-1 to one or 7-1, to one, which he was probably the second or third horse that could have won the race. And it was just like, wow, I like seeing the underdog win. It's, it's always something I enjoy, uh, enjoy watching. Such as, uh, well, if you're very young, you can look it up on YouTube. Like the 1980 American uh, hockey team that beat the Russians uh, in Lake Placid. And that's pretty awesome. You should watch those clips of when they win. Because basically the Russians, before they allowed professionals in the sports, a lot of these uh, communist countries... They had their, they basically were like pro teams. <laughs> and they just kicked everybody's ass, <laughs> you know, until we let our pro players and then we could beat them in basketball and all these other sports that were in there. But, uh, yeah, I, I, many years ago I went to, it's probably a teenager between 16 and 18, I went to Lake Placid. That's a cool place to go. It's interesting. It's all, you know, you see the uh, speed skating rink. Go and watch, oh God, go and see ski jumping. All I have to say is, those guys are fucking nuts. It's just, yeah, you just, you can watch on TV and go, wow, that's what, it, when you see the scale and how fast you're going down the ramp and just, it, it's pretty amazing to watch them and the bobsled teams. That's pretty, that's super cool. Uh, and actually, I got to go inside the hockey rink. And when I went in there, I was walking around and I, I went under the, I saw something under, the, under the, the stands and behind them. It was, it was a small place. I found a hockey puck, so that was pretty cool. And it said made in Czechoslovakia. So I wonder, whether, I wonder how long the hockey puck was there. You know, Czechoslovakia, who was, it's, I think most of the pucks would be made in Canada. Maybe they're not anymore, but this was a long time ago. This was literally, wow. I'm trying to think how uh, games were in 80. I think we went there in 86 or. 85 maybe so i'm just curious i wonder where that what game that hockey puck came from so it was kind of cool um but that's that's a cool place to go it's just so different because it's so you have people sometimes you have people going there for competitions from all over the world it's kind of fascinating to see uh different people uh doing these winter sports I wanted to try and do one, but I was, you know, you have to, you have to live there and be in an area where you can actually do it. It's hard to, you know, you have to, I wanted to do the luge, you know, the guys that are on the one little sled and they're laying back going, I don't know, 60 plus miles an hour down a, uh, an ice, <laughs> a, a snaking ice rink. That's what I call it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, uh, it was either that or the skeleton, which is when you go head first on a little sled. Um, which is pretty insane when you're doing the speeds they are doing and you could crash and get hurt, but I just can't fathom just pushing off and just going fast and there's no breaks until you get to the end and you can 
dig your toes in or lift up the front of the sled, depending on which one of those you're doing, which if you're doing the skeleton, it's your feet, I think, obviously. And when you're doing the luge, yeah, it's your feet and you pull up the front of the sled to slow you down. But when do you ever, the only thing I can really, the only sensation I ever had of something like that was doing a downhill mountain bike race. Well, two, twice in, in Maine. And you're going down the hill and then just letting go of the brakes and just going like, I don't know, 35, 45 miles an hour. And you let go till you get too scared and need to slow down or when you're going to hit a turn. But you do have to brake. You can brake. Whereas in a luge or bobsled or skeleton, you just let it go. And you just hang, hang the hell on. <laughs> I should, I, I don't know. I don't know how people do that. I just, it's just, uh, I like to try it. I would still like to try it. I think in like plastic, you can go up there and they'll take you down a bobsled run. That would be something I still like to do, but I don't know. I highly doubt they'll be doing it this winter unless, well, you could, I guess you can wear a mask, but how would they, they'd have the driver be up way front. If you had a four man bobsled, they'd probably, you can have the driver jump in. And you push from the back and jump, stay in the back. Well, you can be kind of spaced away from each other. But I'm not so sure about that. But that's that would be unfortunate if they... I would just love to try that. Uh, ski jumping? No, not so much. But it'd be fat. It'd be... But it must be amazing when you're in a ski jump and you just lift off. And you're just kind of just flying down the hill. You just like flying. I've done skiing and done little jumps. But I've only liked doing that when it snowed couple feet and then before they groom the trail you can bounce over bumps at least if you fall it's soft and that's the only time i like doing that because otherwise it hurts like hell um not that it still isn't fun but i don't like taking jumps and then landing on something that's been groomed that it's hard like bam now nah, i'm passing that uh the only thing when it's really deep powder you fall and you lose your skis eject off you uh you have to try and find them it's like uh <laughs> you almost need a metal detector sometimes you wish you had one like a ski metal detector to find where your ski is uh but i haven't skied in a while i would say at least 20 years yeah and i and last time i the one and only time i snowboarded was probably in 90 mid 90s i can't think it was 96 or 95 and that was in colorado which was awesome got lessons for the whole week and everything that's fun i mean but see the thing what's and i probably said this before but the thing with snowboarding is you either fall forward or you fall back with skiing you kind of fall to the side you could fall back you could fall forward which is really bad <laughs> it's really bad down snowboard too but at least you can kind of like lay down and kind of control your fall a little better um but snowboarding is still kind of cool. What I really would love to try, what I really, I've done, didn't, I've done boogie boarding many years ago, but see, my ears are really messed up. And even I, I would, if I could just have somebody design a certain ear covering that would cover my ears, the guaranteed 100% no water would get them. So I wouldn't get any ear infections. I would love to just get on a surfboard and just surf and try it. Um, I don't know where I'd want to do it. I'd want to do it in Hawaii because there they have some 
small waves just go on and on. You just get on like a long board and you walk up and down the board, go backwards and forwards on the board. Not that I would be good enough to do that. I'd just be happy to even catch a wave and ride it. And, uh, and the water is so clear. I just watched certain, uh, I had mentioned this before as Jamie O'Brien, check him out on YouTube. It's, uh, it's got a nice lifestyle. I mean, he's shooting videos all the time. Well, he has a crew that shoots him and, uh, sells merch, which you need to make money and, uh, which is cool, but it's just, uh, it's kind of cool. It would just be cool to be stand, I, standing up and you're kind of above the wave because I've done boogie boarding or body surfing and you're kind of in the wave. Uh, and that's fun too. I, I, I enjoyed doing that when I was a lot younger. Um, but surfing is just something I'd really like to try. So I got to figure out, find out, research more about earplugs. Cause I just can't get water in there. If I get water in my ears, I get an ear infection and if I get an ear infection, then it's just not good, which really sucks because I love the water. I love the water so much. And it's just, it's almost like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. I just feel so comfortable in the water and I haven't been in the water. Well, other than the shower, <laughs> it's like, I don't really go in the ocean because I can only go up a certain, you know, to like my neck and, uh, you just can't, it's fun. I still like it. I like going and wa sitting down and watching surfers or just listening to the waves and putting up a, an umbrella and laying down and just laying back and just relaxing and enjoying the sounds, preferably on a kind of a windy day because otherwise you get those little natty bugs that bug the shit out of you, but um, that, that I don't like or the flies or whatever else. But when it's a little windy, it keeps the bugs away and you can just you know, just, just relax, just watch boats go by and chill and just enjoy that. But still, I really got to, I really would love to get on a surfboard before I'm too old. Uh, but that's pretty much it. And that's going to wrap it up. I had some other things discussed, but this is going on. This might be the longest one yet. So I just want to thank you everybody for listening. And I really, uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your day or your morning or evening to listen. And uh, I just wish you much happiness, peace, love, all that good stuff. And uh, that's pretty much it. So <laughs> I say thank you again and much love and adios. Until next time, I'll see you there.